seated. If you have your Bibles, you'll turn me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we continue part five of a sermon series that we've entitled The Triumph of the Lamb, uh, what the Lamb of God Jesus has done, the victory he has won for us. And we're looking at the first five chapters, primarily focusing on chapter one. We looked at the portrait of who this resurrected Jesus is. It's amazing. And then in chapters two and three, he's written a letter um, through the Spirit of God to the churches there in Asia Minor, kind of modern day Turkey. Uh, incredible insight for them and for us. And then we're going to look at chapters four and five that shows us Jesus on the throne and who he is and how amazingly worthy he is. So uh, thanks for journeying uh, with us. If you ever miss one, they're on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on our website. And I hope you're learning as much as I am. Because I just love digging in and seeing, again, the beautiful portrait of who Jesus is as the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. Wow, he's incredible. If you've ever been to Haifa, Israel, it's an amazing city uh, right on the water. Um, As a matter of fact, I've been to Haifa a few times because there's a Messianic Christian church uh, that uh, worships there. And I've gotten to know the pastor, Pastor Leon, an amazing story of how he came to Christ as a, a Jewish, a Russian Jewish man who was serving in the Red Army. And uh, the Lord comes to him in a dream. And uh, through that dream, he realizes that Jesus is the Lord. Uh, and he comes to faith in Christ. And God calls him back to Israel. And now he's got a church there. But Haifa is a cool place. I mean, Haifa right there on the, on the Mediterranean, the water uh, is, is awesome. But if you go to Haifa, one of the things you're going to see is there's this big Bahia shrine. As a matter of fact, you see it from the top looking down. It kind of dominates a little bit of, of the city. Uh, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful garden, a, a beautiful shrine or temple that is there. The Baha'i faith, here's what they are. They're a religion uh, that teaches the essential worth of all religions and the unity and equality of all people. And you might hear that the first time. So, okay, is that... Is that good? It was established by a guy, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Baha'u Ulua in 1863, uh, mostly in Persia, in the Iran area and parts of the Middle East. And they kind of have a bumper sticker that you've seen that will kind of tell you what they believe. Uh, As a matter of fact, it really comes out of their teaching, uh, comes out of their belief. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Uh, The coexist. You know, what do we think of that bumper sticker that takes all these religions, all these worldviews, and wants to bring them all together? Well, this morning, we'll be examining the letter that the risen Lamb Jesus has sent to the church in Pergamum. And Pergamum was an amazing city, but it was filled with a lot of pagan worldviews and ideas. Of all the churches, it probably had the most of of pagan worldviews and most of of different ideas. And if they were bumper stickers on the chariots or whatever they might be in Pergamum, I guarantee you they would be all over the city would be this. As a matter of fact, they would not have the T because the one they didn't want to coexist was Christianity. They were persecuting them because of it. You see, the danger the church of Pergamum was facing is is about to become a church of the world. They were becoming more and more like the world instead of more and more like the church reflecting of Christ. 
So what do we think? Now, I did this long before a political statement was made. <laughs> I knew I was going to do this, so I'm not following suit with anybody here politically. But really, this is not the call of Christianity. Christianity, we are to love our neighbors, but we are not to become like our pagan neighbors. We're to love them, but not become like them. Truth. If there's one word I could give you that is important, that Jesus is going to drill home to us, if there's one thing you hear, here it is. Truth. This is what Pergamum needed to hear to stress the importance that the church needs to hold on to firmly as can be God's truth. And when it comes to truth specifically, two things we got to hold on to. The truth of who God is, can't miss it. The truth of who God's son is, that triune God, but God's son Jesus, we cannot miss the truth of who Jesus is. Because people are ringing our doorbells telling us things that aren't truthful about him. So we got to be true to God's word. We got to be true to God's son. We got to be truthful of who Jesus is as Jesus is and only is the Lord. And we also got to be truth, truthful to what Jesus requires. We got to walk in truth. So it's knowing the truth and also walking the truth. The church needs to do both. So we've looked at the church of Ephesus. Very interesting. The church of Ephesus knew truth. As a matter of fact, when heretics came their way, they weeded them out. I don't know how they spotted them. And they wouldn't stand for it. In Ephesus, they had truth, but they didn't have love. Now listen, truth without love, it's hard. It's harsh. And that's not supposed to be the church. Pergamum had love without truth. And love without truth, it's soft. It's just sentimental. And we live in a time which more like Pergamum, like it's so important to love, just love everybody and just embrace everything to the point where we love to the point where we let go truth. And you can't. The church needs both. It needs love and needs truth permanently bound together. By the way, love and truth is personified in Jesus. That's why we see it. It's so beautiful. We can't separate them. Pergamum. It's going to be described, how about living in this city? How about, maybe you want to see on Zillow, Pergamum, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. You know, you think that's not the place you would probably want to move to if you're a good Christian couple. So why in the world did it say the place where Satan's throne is or the place that Satan dwells? Well, let me talk to you a little bit about geographically. Pergamum was about 50 miles north of Smyrna. It's about 10 miles from the Aegean Sea. And apparently as you walk to the city, it's up on this hill. And as you walk to the city, the city kind of looks like a throne. It's kind of, uh, it looks like it has a throne to it. On the very top of this thousand foot cliff, um, is a temple. As a matter of fact, Pergamum was known for four major pagan religions. All were prospering there. Zeus. Zeus had the coolest temple, apparently, uh, the biggest temple uh, up on top of the hill. There was Zeus. Not far from Zeus was a temple for Athena close by. Dionysius had a temple there too, but it was Asclepius, or Asclepius, or however you pronounce that guy, who was a god of healing. Now, here's very interesting about this. This town became known for a healing center. They thought that there was healing, especially through this god, 
uh, and therefore they had a shrine to him as well. And guess what the symbol was for this God? A snake. It was a snake, probably on a rod. Uh, uh, again, probably where you'll see oftentimes medically with the snake there as well. Um, people would travel to this city for healing. There was a guy by the name of Galen who was born there. Has anybody ever heard of Galen? As a matter of fact, my son is studying for um, his boards right now for medical boards. I'm like, do you know a guy named Galen? He goes, oh yeah, he wrote the first anatomy book that people kind of revered for like a thousand years. So it was a city that had four major pagan cults kind of known for um, uh, some healing. It would, but here's what is very interesting. In the midst of those four pagan cults, it was the leading city of the Roman emperor cult. It was the leading, even more than Ephesus. What means this, that they would say Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't agree that Caesar was Lord, it could cost you your life. As a matter of fact, in 29 AD, three years before Smyrna, they built the very first temple to a living Caesar named Augustus. So they built this temple for him, uh, I love what one commentary writer said. If Ephesus was like New York City, probably Pergamum was like Washington. It was the hotbed for the Roman imperial cult. And it was dangerous not to worship Caesar there. We're going to read about that. They had a great library. They had over 200,000 parchment scrolls. It's where we get Pergamum and parchment. Parchment came from Pergamum. So what is it? Here's the point. You got all these pagan religions. You got this amazing library with all these scrolls. You have all these worldviews. You have all these things that were trying to coexist together. To me, Pergamum reminds me of modern day Israel or Jerusalem, but really Israel. Have you been to Jerusalem during Ramadan? You may not know this, but the Muslims, there's a huge Muslim contingent there. And if you're there during Ramadan, you're going to see them all pour into Jerusalem to go up to the Dome of the Rock um, to, to worship. Have you ever been there in, in, in Jerusalem at the Shabbat or the Sabbath? On the Sabbath, you're going to see all the Jews, with, many of them will run to the Western Wall to be there to pray on the Sabbath. Uh, for Christians that we often gather at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which some would think was the place that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. But for many of us, think it's more like the garden tomb. Have you been to the garden tomb? If you go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, where there's this empty tomb, oh, it's amazing. You're going to hear Christians singing. You're going to see Christians taking communion. I mean, it's just the place that these cultures have all collided. Then I talked about the Baha'i the Temple also. They're all right there trying to coexist. Pergamum. But we live in a city like Pergamum. We live in a time like Pergamum. A plethora of worldviews in direct contrast and opposition to Christianity. How do we be faithfully the church in the midst of a coexist society? How do we do this? So as we examine the letter to the church in Pergamum, we're going to focus on five things this morning. We're going to see that what the triumph of the Lamb, Jesus, what he wields, what the triumph of the Lamb knows. This is really important. We've looked at each week what he knows is so significant. What the triumph of the Lamb praises this church, what he rebukes in this church, and what he promises this church. So let's read God's holy word. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week in chapter 2, verse 12. This letter is contained in verses 12 through 17. 
Let's be mindful. This is God's holy, inerrant word. It'll never lead us astray, nor is it ever wrong. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that endures. And we thank you for the letter that your spirit and son have sent to Pergamum. And the reality is of maybe all these churches, this one has a lot of signs like the church here in the States today with competing worldviews, with worldliness seeping into the church. Oh God, come. Come and give us ears to hear your voice. Give us minds to understand your word. Give us hearts that embrace your truth. And God, give us feet that will walk in a manner worthy of your name. Do that which only you could do. Speak through a broken sinner like me. Father, the things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, oh Lord, would you use those things to bring beauty and purity to your church? Would you use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior Jesus, in its matchless name that we pray, amen. Okay, the first thing we got to do is I got to show you something amazingly cool about this letter written to the church of Pergamum because it's going to use language that you're not aware of. Well, I mean, the book of Revelation does that a lot, but it's going to use a couple of names that unless you've read through the Old Testament, unless you've kind of gotten familiar with scripture, it uses the name Balaam and Balak. And so who are Balaam and Balak and why is this teaching infiltrating the church? Well, this is a story that God's word gives to us. It's an awesome story. It starts in Numbers chapter two. And it's a time where God's people have been released from slavery by those plagues and they've crossed through the Red Sea and they're making their way to the promised land. And they're coming along to a territory of Moab. And even Moab is a cool story how they got there, but we don't have time. So the king of Moab was a guy named Balak. And Balak saw all these people, God's people coming. And he had heard all the things that God's people were doing and he was terrified. So he, he paid a lot of money. As a matter of fact, he kept paying them more money to a guy named Balaam. And Balaam was supposed to come and look at God's people and curse them. Interesting guy, Balaam. Balaam's probably the guy in scripture when scripture says, 
hey, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Because Balaam seems to be like a coexist guy. He's like into all kinds of gods. But supposedly he had this ability where who he curses is cursed and who he blesses is blessed. It's only our God's ability. So Balak goes to Balaam and says, hey, listen, I want you to look at the people. I want you to curse them. And God, God Almighty, the living God shows up to Balaam and says, Balaam, you can only say what I tell you to say. You can't do anything more. As a matter of fact, it's really interesting. God shows up with an angel with a sword. The sword is going to be important in this story. And so Balaam is going to go and, and, and maybe curse God's people and he can't see his, his donkey that he's riding. This is before the movie Shrek, but I think they got it from it. His, the donkey can see the angel of the Lord with a sword and the donkey doesn't go anywhere and he's beating this donkey saying, come on. He said, can't you see? I love it. He starts yelling at his donkey. His donkey starts talking back to him and he starts talking back to his donkey. Now, I mean, to me, I'm just... What a great story. I mean, who talks to a donkey? I mean, who's going back? But anyway, let me get on the point. So Balaam goes, sees God's people three times. He says, I can't curse them. I got to bless them. I got to bless them. Balak is like, I gave you one job. Curse these people. You're blessing my enemies. But Balaam says, and we'll find out through scripture, I got a better idea. You can't get these people direct. You can get them indirect. You want to get to them? Send them your women. Send them the Moabite women. Have the Moabite women invite them to our feast. The feast to the false gods, because we know what happens. And all the sexual immorality and all the food that was sacrificed to idols, we'll get them that way. And it worked. And God's people all of a sudden started blending. And they got invited in to other festivals. They got invited in to other worldviews. They got invited in and they were trapped. And they got trapped and they fell. And it took a plague. It took it standing up. It took a sword to kind of release them. So that's, that's what is happening um, when you hear about Balaam and the teaching of Balaam uh, and Balak. It's a beautiful analogy that's happening in the early church. They did not succumb to a direct attack at first. It was the friendship of the world that got them, that immorality. So the first thing we see is this, is what does it tell us about this triumphant lamb? What does the verse, what does this letter tell us? Remember, every description you receive through chapter two and three, every church has already been given that description in chapter one. In chapter one, we see the beautiful portrait of who this risen lamb is, this triumphant lamb. And then he's going to take a part of the description. He's going to apply it to the church that needs it the most right there. And this is talking about Jesus having a sharp tongue, like a double-edged sword uh, that comes from his mouth. A sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. Well, what does a two-edged sword do? It cuts two ways. Here's what I want you to know. God's word, what is it used for? It's to cut out the cancer. It's to cut out the worldly cancer from within the church. That's what he wants to do. He wants to use his word, his eternal word to cut out the junk, the gangrene that so naturally grows in our lives, it grows in our churches. He comes to cut it out. He says, listen, I'm going to come and and there's blessings in cutting. It's interesting. Katie and I have right outside uh, uh, our back door, we have some knockout roses and we've had them for a long time. 
And, and for a long time, they just get leggy and they don't work very well. And I remember uh, asking somebody uh, at Appenberry's, man, my, my, my roses are just kind of gross. He says, do you cut them? I'm afraid to. Cut them down. Cut them low. Trim them. Just to see what happens. Just recently, it's amazing. You, you cut and you can see, cut out the dead. You cut out what's not supposed to be there and they flourish again. So God's word, the word that proceeds from Christ's mouth is like a double-edged sword. Part of God's word is to cut the cancer out of your life and my life and the church to make us healthy. But it also is to cut away the adversaries from the church. It cuts the cancer from within the church. It cuts away our adversaries from the church. I love him. He says, listen, if you don't repent, I'm coming. And I'm coming after them. I'm coming after them who are trying to mess you up. I'm coming after those who have false worldviews, all these ideas that aren't Christians. I'm coming. And the sword to bring judgment. Again, it's interesting because Scripture will tell us in Romans 13 that the sword was not given to the church. The sword was given to the government. At this time, it would be Rome. And they should use it rightly. They're not using it rightly. So we have our God saying, this is the proper use of the sword. We think of Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13, it says that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to cut right to the bone, to the marrow. It has the ability to, to pierce us. This is God's word. It should show us the beauty of God's story. It should cut our hearts and set them on flame for him. So who is he? He's one who wields the sword. But what does the triumphant lamb know? I love this. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know your circumstances. I know your surroundings. I know your struggles. I know your temptations. I know what you're facing. I get it. Remember, we've learned that the lamb is in the midst of the lampstands. He's with us. He's for us. And he knows. He knows your circumstances. He says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. Some good, some not so good. Remember what he said to Smyrna. Hey, I, I, I know your tribulation. I know it. I know what you're going through. I, I know your persecution. And yet for Pergamum, he's like, I know your surroundings. I, I, I know where you are. I know what you're dealing with. Don't you love the fact that Jesus knows your surroundings? He knows your circumstances. He knows where you dwell. This word abide. I know that where you are is where Satan dwells. I know there's a lot of bad things there. I know there's some awful worldviews. And I know that it might cost you your life following me. I know it. But you know the story of the Christianity, the story of the Bible is this. God made you to dwell with him. God made you to abide with him. And Jesus came to abide with us. He put on a tent. He tabernacled among us. He abided with us so that we will forever abide with God. That's the whole story. I know you, where you are right now. I know where you're dwelling, but there's a time coming. You're going to be with me and I'm going to get you home and you'll be dwelling with me forever. Such good news. You know, in the new heaven, the new earth, there's no temple. There's no need for a temple. Why? Because God dwells with his people. I know where you dwell and you're starting to dwell with the world. You start to become more like him. You need to dwell with me. You see, the goal for Christians is not to coexist. Listen, our goal is to dwell with God. That's the gospel, to be with him. Interestingly, if you lived in Pergamum, would you want to move? 
If you're in a place where they say Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells, wouldn't you want to say, maybe it's not the place to raise my family? The school districts here are terrible. Do you know what they're teaching? And the football team's no good. They cheat like crazy. Wouldn't you want to move? Now listen, you know how many of us, especially I see young people, they always think that, that maybe life will be better in another location. If I could just go over there, maybe it's the weather or something, the economy. God isn't asking them to move. Think about that. He didn't tell them to move. He just says, don't compromise. God has you here for a reason. And maybe he's going to move you and he'll make that clear. But don't think the answer is just going away somewhere. Because there's brokenness and sin in here. There's brokenness and sin all around us. But God says, just don't compromise. It's not to move. It's not to compromise. So what the triumphant lamb knows, he knows where we dwell. But what the triumphant lamb praises, he praises them, and he's rightfully so, because they were faithful under the assaults of the world's violence. There's two things I want you to pick up. They were faithful under the assaults of the world's violence. When facing attack, they held fast to Jesus' name. He said that. They didn't say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. And this guy, Antipas, was martyred. It's a beautiful thing. He's called a faithful witness. Do you know the word witness is where we get the word martyr? He's being called a martyr. You are a faithful martyr. You gave your life to Christ. Faithful. We don't know how he died. Tradition will tell us outside the Bible that he was boiled to death in a bronze bull. Don't know if that's true or not. But it didn't end well for Anubis. It, he, he, he died because he said, Jesus is Lord. He died because he says, I'm not confessing that Caesar is Lord. I'm not doing it. And he was faithful and obedient to the point of even death. How amazing. God praised that. But interesting what the triumphant lamb rebukes. Yielding to the allures of the world's friendship. That's what they were yielding to. They stood up to the defense, but they were yielding to the allures of the friendship of the world. They withstood a frontal attack of violence, but they were succumbing to friendship of the world. Isn't that our temptation? I mean, no one's going to make you stand up and say, say Caesar is Lord, say Trump is Lord, and you're going to die. No one's going to happen. It's not going to happen. But the world's going to come alongside. Be, be like me. Just act like me. Be like us. My best friend um, in high school and as a child, when he got to college age, decided to give his life to Christ in a way he became a missionary. And on one of his missionary journeys, he was down by Karen's town. He was down in Belize and they were on a ship and they were going around and they were, they were sharing the gospel. And as they were out on the seas, the seas got a little bit rough. And all of a sudden they noticed that they had a crack and the water started filling into their ship, the little boat. And pretty soon they were calling Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. We got to be rescued because a ship is supposed to stay on top of the water the water is not supposed to get inside the ship. And if the water gets inside the ship, guess what happens? It sinks. We are a church that is supposed to be in the world, but not filled with the world, not of the world. And the more the world seeps into us and the more worldliness we have and the way we think and the way we act is like the world we begin to sink. And that's what happens. You know, there's only a few who held to the teaching, and he was against those few. But here's the problem. A few held to it. And by the way, the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Balaam, they're probably the same. They were letting in the world. They were attending their festivals. They were probably engaging in sexual immorality. Um, and they were starting to sink and seep away. There were a few that were into it, but the majority didn't do anything about it. 
Here's the point. The church has got to take a stand. Maybe it's not everybody who's into it, but to say this is truth, this is God's word, we can't let it go. I mean, this is, this is our God's holy and errant word. We've got to stand for truth. Three things we've got to do. Confess the truth that Jesus is Lord. Walk in the truth. I love John, and I, and I have some verses like 2 John 4 or 3 John 3, where John himself will say, walk in the truth, walk in the truth. Not just, not just know it in your head, know it in your shoe leather. Walk it out. And here's the reality. Are you ready for this? We're to spread the truth. We're as ambassadors. Three things you're called to. Know the truth, who Jesus is, walk in that, and spread it out to others. And what does the triumphant lamb promise? He promises two things. Hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. Okay. Hidden manna. Instead of attending the feast and the festivals that the world throws, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the true bread of heaven. And Jesus is inviting us to, to enjoy this hidden manna of the, of the supper, the marriage supper of the lamb, that there's a meal that's coming that we can gather and attend, that he will feed us. Hidden manna that is still to come, feed upon Christ. And then, again, I, I don't have time to really unpack this, but I want to tell you, this white stone with a new name written on it, it's fun reading the scholars trying to think what it is, but I want to give you three thoughts about it. The innocence in Christ, the invitation from Christ, and intercession. What do you mean by that? Do you know a white stone was used in a verdict? that if they hear a case, they throw a black stone if you're guilty and a white stone if you're innocent. And this white stone is the justification in Christ. You're innocent. If you are in Christ Jesus, you're declared not guilty. Such good news. Not only that, this, this uh, white stone was often given to a champion, someone who maybe survived uh, in the gladiator pit, and they were given a white stone, which was like an admission ticket that they could go in and out uh, and where they wanted to go. It was an admission ticket. Well, that white stone is an admission, an invitation to Christ. Because of the champion Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, heaven's door has been opened up to us. Also, the white stone represented the high priest and the, the people that were represented on his robe, that he lives to intercede for them. Our name is on Jesus, and he lives to intercede for us. King's Chapel, we must be a church that loves and we must be a church that stands on truth. We can't let the world standards seep into us. Coexist is not our ultimate goal. Abiding with Christ is. For the glory of our great God, for the good of our neighbor, may we be a church passionate about loving God and our neighbor and passionate about truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your amazing word. God, it's so convicting. The church of Pergamum, man, they stood up and they said, Jesus is Lord and you love them for it. But they let the world in and they were sinking. And I get it because I think I've done it so many times in my own life. Oh Lord, help us to repent. Help us to turn again to Jesus. Help us to be a church that knows the truth, that walks in the truth and proclaims the truth. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.